Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramau Ramos, and I am one of the hosts on the channel. And I just finished speaking with Professor He Bien about her new book, Know Your Remedies, Pharmacy and Culture in Early Modern China. This came out in 2020 with Princeton University Press. And I have been thinking a lot about how to best describe this book. In terms of what it covers, its contents, Know Your Remedies looks at the history of pharmacy in early modern China. It explores pharmaceutical objecthood in Ming and Qing China, so between the 16th and 18th centuries, tracing how pharmacy was thought about and approached, how this once state-dominated and court- and official-driven field became amateurized in the late Ming, than how the growth of long-distance trade and investigations into new frontier regions in the Qing led to the rise of urban pharmacies and new forms of knowledge about the natural world. It combines book history, material culture studies, political history, and the history of science and technology. It uses pharmacopoeia, uh, works of literature, material objects, And it combines records about tiger hunting and corpse bugs with gazetteers about materia medica collecting. In terms of its contents, this is a wonderful quilt-like book. But, you know, this summary, I'm not sure that it really does the book justice because this is a confident book. This is a suave book. This is just an all-around cool book. This book takes familiar moments and familiar themes, including decentralization, monetization, commercialization, and the Ming-Ching transition, the kinds of themes and moments that really inform how we talk about and really how we teach Ming-Ching history, 
and it offers a really new take on them. By approaching these themes through the lens of pharmacy, and by moving pharmaceutical knowledge to the center of the story, this book shows a different side to these familiar themes. And it also shows how much Chinese pharmacy is part of this wider story. So even if you know a whole lot about Chinese history, I can almost promise you that you will learn something new from this book. And if you know nothing at all about early modern Chinese history, then you are in for a treat because this is a great place to start. And this is also a great book to read if you are interested in or if you've been hearing a lot about recently, given recent events, Chinese medicine. This book as a whole, just by existing, makes this point, but it comes across most clearly in the epilogue, Chinese pharmacy has a history. There is nothing static about it, there is no one single Chinese pharmacy, and there is no authentically Chinese pharmacy. This is such a beautiful exploration of these multiple Chinese pharmacies that have existed throughout history and throughout this period. So I hope that you seek this out, this wonderful, patchworky, all-around cool book, and I hope that you enjoy my conversation with He Bian that follows. I'm here today with Professor He Bian to discuss her new book, Know Your Remedies, Pharmacy and Culture in Early Modern China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your summer and with everything going on uh, to talk with me today. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, it's it's been an honor. Uh, I look forward to it. And me too. So uh, let's begin, as is tradition on the channel, with your beginning. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to the field? How did you come to work not just on Chinese history, but on the history of science as well? Yeah, I guess the answer is somewhat of a, the, the opposite is I became a historian of science first. Uh, and I came to history of science from science itself. I was trained as a biologist as an undergraduate back in Beijing. And then I thought, I'm going to do something that helps society. So I came to the United States to do a master's degree in uh, public health and human nutrition, actually, in particular. And then while there, I landed in those gigantic hospital systems of Chicago, Illinois. I still remember my dorm window kind of overlooks the Cook County Hospital. And then I I became fascinated by the possibility of understanding healthcare from a historical and um, perhaps social scientific perspective. And so while there in Chicago, I got converted into history of medicine, um, and then I applied to uh, PhD programs in history of science. So, and, and then I thought I would do modern history, modern China, um, the kind of how Chinese medicine encountered Western medicine kind of topic. Um, but then while at Harvard, I got then converted back in time to become a Qing historian. 
That's kind of a long, long winded so story to arrive, but but that's essentially what happened. Yeah. No, not at all. I love that. So then you were pulled back into the Qing and I guess into the Ming a little bit. Yeah, as well. I know. I know. I think this is this is the early <laughs> modern, right? This is the this is the the the, the search for for a, a a point where I can I can have a beginning of a story. It's not the absolute beginning of antiquity, but I guess I was searching back then for some place that is not late Qing, that is not 20th century, but can help me understand the modern. And then, so that's kind of the beginning of why I come up with this project and it ends up being early modern. So we can talk more about what exactly that means, but this was actually the beginning of how I came into the field. Very, very cool. And I love that you said that you started off being interested in nutrition because right. there's <laughs> quite a bit about nutrition in this book itself that yeah. we will get to. Perfect. Uh, so with that, as we're sort of launching into the book itself, um, I was hoping you might talk a bit about how this book sort of developed. Because as you said uh, in the acknowledgments of this book, this book is a revised and expanded study based on your PhD dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I went back to read a little bit of mm -hmm. your dissertation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and this book is a complete and total revision. Um, I don't think you just yeah. revised the dissertation. You really transformed it. I don't mm -hmm. think I found a paragraph yeah. in the Every dissertation that you had not rewritten. Every sentence is different. Right. Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? What was important for you in the revision process? And you know, what was helpful to you when you were revising? So I think this is not, I don't think this will happen to every dissertation. Um, I think I wasn't particularly hard on myself to basically tear it down and rebuild it from the ground. But I, I do think there is a change in audience uh, between my dissertation, which is a history of science, history of medicine dissertation. And that format gave me some uh, space to just lay out what I have found, right? So I think it happens in certain topic and projects in graduate school when you are just really hard pushed to finish and you have collected so much and then you parse them and you analyze them and you give a framework to kind of make them stay in one bounded space, right? Um, but for a book, I think I was really um, reminded and uh came to the realization that I need to make an argument for Chinese history. I need to make it work as a coherent story with a chronological uh, logic and boundaries, and that I need to basically retell my story by breaking my dissertation down to pieces and then weave them back, back together. So I think... I think if I were publishing this as a history of medicine book, it might retain some of the structure. But I think the, the easiest answer is the book is intended for the audience of 
East Asian studies and Chinese history primarily, with in addition um, this uh, this concern that it will be legible to history of science and history of medicine. So I think there is an inversion of who am I talking to, and so that results in this overhaul um, in the writing process. Mm-hmm. I think you, you used the word. Um reweaving there. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I think, I think the the weaving process was entirely successful as far as I can tell from Thank my you. one reader's point of view, mm-hmm. uh, because this is not just, this is not just a cool book in that it's filled with really, you know, fascinating examples and really cool texts. Um, this is also a comprehensive book. So you mm-hmm. touch on mm-hmm. so many big themes here, commercialization, monetization, the center versus the local, the growth of empire, rise of print culture, you know, yeah. the kind of the kinds of big themes that will be familiar to listeners if they've ever taken a course on right. Chinese history. early modern mm-hmm. Chinese history, yes. yeah. but, you know, early modern history in general. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But because you're you're taking a new approach on it. Um, it's all entirely new. So yeah. I don't know if it was your intention to write a book that could be used as, you know, a really cool kind of textbook. But I think that this book absolutely mm, could be used mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that it is. Uh, so let's dive into the book itself. So mm-hmm. know your remedies, as mm-hmm. you say in the introduction. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading from the book here. Um, It explores the career of pharmaceutical objecthood in Chinese culture between the 16th and 18th centuries. Viewing Chinese history through the lens of pharmacy, this book also seeks to present an explanation of how Chinese approaches to knowledge underwent a sea change during this period. Mm -hmm. And by during this period, you're referring to the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644, and the Qing Dynasty, 1636 to 1912. So this is very much a trans-dynastic book, yes. which is quite rare. Most mm-hmm. books either take on the Ming or the Qing, um, yeah. not both. And I was wondering, wondering if you could talk a bit about this. Why was it important to you to write a trans-dynastic history? And what does taking that approach do when we look at, you know, periodizing Chinese history, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, um, telling the history of Chinese pharmacy? Right. Periodization is a central question as we basically lay out the parameters of our project. And then I was confronted with the question of, are you a Ming historian or Qing historian many times? And but I think the simple thing, right, for you, for us to realize is that cultural history simply doesn't believe in dynastic boundaries. It just doesn't work. So when you look at the chronology of this Bental Materia Medica books that were created and published during this 300-year period, I'm talking about 16th century to 18th century, it's pretty clear that that is a unit in terms of the number of new titles and the kind of frequency of adaptation of previous works. And then there isn't an obvious uh, uh, change in 1644 when Manchu troops entered Beijing, right? So this is this is, I think, my working principle as a cultural historian, which is to say that political change is just one variable. 
and there is no way you 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 put that on the table first and then cut your project afterwards. And I, I, I will also say the same same thing for economic socioeconomic change. The, the, the chronology of how marketplace integrated itself across the country doesn't really follow dynastic lines. So this is something that regimes one after another has to reckon with and it could impact to a certain extent. But I think we already have a very robust field that sees early modern um, early modern Chinese history from a kind of socioeconomic change perspective. And it's been pretty established that people will start their story from the 16th century and then go from there. Um, so I think that is something that I hold on to a lot. But I, I also think that my story adds a kind of layer of intellectual and cultural change on top of the Euro kind of early modern global trade from the Wanli period and money comes in. So I, I so in, I guess I what I'm saying is I'm not prioritizing dynastic change or the kind of this economic story of of basically um the 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 a bottom up story, right? It's it's a lot of different um uh, um, trends going on in the book and that I think is intentionally I make them um, talk to each other and then it's 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 up to the reader to decide how do you um, weave those different threads in your head after you follow the book through yourself absolutely and as you said you know the book itself because you are taking you know the lens you're looking at this very um, a particular period in time that has been covered right the you know the certain themes that have been mm-hmm. talked about but you're using the lens of pharmacy to look mm-hmm. at them so i think in that sense it is definitely uh, an entirely uh, new take in that from that perspective mm-hmm. um, and something that i think that the book itself as a whole makes really clear um, is that Chinese pharmacy has a history, um, yeah. despite, you know, ideas and models yeah. of Chinese pharmacy being timeless and monolithic and unchanging. The mm-hmm. book itself is a testament mm-hmm. um, to the change that you see during this period. Um, and I said the word model there of Chinese pharmacy, and I mean that, you know, figuratively and literally, because yeah. one of That's the objects that you talk mm-hmm. about in the introduction of the book is this darling little model Mm -hmm. of a a scale model of a Chinese pharmacy Mm -hmm. uh, received by the Pharmaceutical Society of Great Britain. Um, And you have the picture of the model in the book. It's this little shop exuding oriental grandeur, um, jars of treasures, pipe smoking customers. um, Mm -hmm. And the book as a whole really pushes against this um, you know, this realized facade of tradition mm-hmm. um, showing that what pharmacy was changed during this period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But while I, you know, I, I wanted to mention the model because I thought it was a lovely way to begin the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is a book that really revolves around texts and right. in particular mm-hmm. around pharmacopias. Mm-hmm. So this book is filled with them. Yeah. Um, and you, as you said, 
you deal with a large number, you touch on, you know, around 50 to 60 titles, and you examine a half about half of these really closely in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is not a genre that begins in the Ming, it began, you know, stretches back before then. So as a way of, you know, getting into the scope of the changes that we start to see during this period, I wonder if you could talk about what pharmacopoeia are and what they were like pre-Ming. So what do we need to know about what they contained, what they looked like, and the context around them pre-Ming in order Mm -hmm. to understand the significance of the changes that we see in the Ming? Mm -hmm. Great. uh, How should I begin? Um, I guess the the easiest way of, of, of maybe introducing the reader to this issue is again from the model, um, which is a picture I got from the Needham archive in Cambridge. So I haven't done the work to track the actual model down. I think it's possible, but then it's a collection by Joseph Needham um, as he was planning, obviously working through his monumental project on science and civilization in China, right? And this is a picture that he collected in the folder that he called pharmacy. And then that that volume planned in SCC on pharmacy and pharmacology hasn't been written yet, actually. He he just has notes. So so about Needham, so he was he he was obviously interested in Chinese pharmacy and, and then he had this very clear take on uh, the history of Chinese knowledge, uh, Chinese um, knowledge about the natural world, as crystallized in this great genre that he called, uh, what what did he say? Pharmaceutical natural history, right? This is his term that he calls the encyclopedic uh, Ben Cao that started in the Tang Dynasty. I'm talking about seventh century, and then. Um, getting those um, expanded uh, uh, sequels and reach the, the height of a state-sponsored um, uh, a project in, in the Northern Seoul. So we are talking about 11th century. And then we have this illustrated double volume that covers over a thousand kinds of ingredients uh, uh, compiled based on reports sent in by uh, local administrations across the Song dynasty and then compiled by a collaborating team of court physicians and uh, scholar officials. Um, so this is this is something that I emphasize a lot in the book is that what I'm calling pharmacopoeia, and I'm 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 saying it because I, I want to highlight the, the, the official nature, the public nature of this genre. Which is that this is a this is a a, a a a format that started in the middle period and really matured uh, during that time. And then, what my book is picking at is to change the Needham story, which is that after the middle period, we have this other great work, uh, Li Shijin's uh, systematic uh, Materia Medica in the 16th century, and then no more. So the Needham story of Chinese botany is that there is this golden period that where China was far ahead of Europe uh, and look at this great 11th century pharmacopoeia 
and look at this great 16th century pharmacopoeia. And then from that point, that's, <laughs> that's when the great titration of science and civilization uh, happens and Europe overtook uh, China. So I think the whole book of mine is trying to not tell that story, right? It's, I'm, I'm trying to say that actually there, is, there are a lot of reasons why we don't see no more pharmacopoeias uh, after the song. And then I'm trying to say that even Li Shizhen, even the 16th century one, should actually be taken as a very odd example given the late Ming uh, cultural milieu. And then I'm trying to explain why that was kind of the last pharmacopoeia moment. And then there are many reasons that we should understand how the genre of how fragmented into this very different um, take on what is natural knowledge and who gets to own them. So this is my basic introduction is I'm, I'm, I'm rewriting the ending of this Needham's story and then not make it a story of decline and uh, and lagging behind, but and I'm trying to rebrand it into a kind of Chinese early modern condition, if you will, in uh, the culture of knowledge. Perfect. So let's dive really into the end of the Needham story right. with chapter mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. Uh, which sort mm-hmm. of, you know, picks up, at, as you just said, at the where Needham sort of stops, where he sees the story as ending. Right. Um, so chapter one, you know, it, it deals, the first part of it deals with um, the fact that pharmacopoeia before this period were really state commissioned. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of state involvement and that mm-hmm. really ends in the Ming Um, You see the decline of the state commissioned pharmacopoeia and the decentralization of then the prestige that had been associated with them. Mm -hmm. And you attribute this to a number of things. But one thing I think is really worth highlighting here is the rising influence of commercial publishing. Mm -hmm. So the central government Mm -hmm. is no longer in control of the production, transmission, and assessment of pharmacopoeia. And with that, you get new texts. So as officials start to create these pharmacopoeia on their own and Mm -hmm. printing them on their own, Mm -hmm. uh, you get new different um, kinds of text. So some of these are reprints and some are new kinds of text. So right. for example, you talk about um, abridged versions mm-hmm. of earlier pharmacopoeia. So, um, uh, far, you know, pharmaceutical crib notes, if you like, yeah, I guess. Totally. Um, and then you get new kinds of pharmacopoeia. So for example, texts that focus on the medicinal properties of food. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talk mm-hmm. about a lot of texts here, mm-hmm. as in the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. Some are well known and some are not. Yeah. Um, but so I'm wondering if you could maybe introduce us to, you know, just one of the texts maybe that you cover in this chapter, a text that was, you know, made possible by this decentralization, by this commercial mm-hmm. publishing rise. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would juxtapose two places, right? One is in Beijing. And with which I started this whole chapter is the death of the Hongzhi Emperor in 1505. And then with the death of this emperor ended his actually earnest effort to, to commission a new pharmacopoeia. And then that text was actually already completed. Uh, and it is a, a colorful, illustrated manuscript that really expands on on the song uh, predecessor 
But then with the death of the emperor and the kind of fall from grace of this palace physician who could absolutely not work with the scholar officials of the day. And then he was seen <laughs> as the culprit that actually killed the emperor and so on. So then the the real victim, right, of this kind of mean constitutional crisis, right, is the technical experts and and literati officials could not work together sacrifice this illuminated manuscript that could well become the next state commission pharmacopoeia. So that's moment one. And then fast forward um, 70 years, in this kind of southern county, um, in the periphery of the kind of really uh, economically developed uh, area we call Jiangnan, or the southern metropolitan area, there this wealthy merchant. Uh, he had no formal degree. Um, he donated this money, I think three three hundred tiers of tiers of silver, something like it's like a expensive sum to sponsor the publishing of his own county's um, own edition of the Song Pharmacopoeia. So I think those two moments really shows you how far the author- the seat of authority travels uh, within the duration of the 16th century, right? Because when I started researching this, one thing is clear is that print was so much more uh, visible and taken up uh, all over the Ming polity. And I-, I should emphasize it's not just commercial publishers, but actually provincial officials first, because they, they thought that, okay, Beijing is not really to be counted on, and let's, let's just keep this great book uh, in circulation in our province. So I think my point is that this is, with thousands of pages and illustrations, this is a challenging book to print. Um, and so at first, it actually, the, the decentralization process first uh, went to provincial uh, offices and even the princely households. And then it was only later in the 16th century when commercial publishers took it up and modeled themselves after the provincial official copies and then this kind of private capital weighing in. So that was the kind of larger environment when Li Shizhen came into the scene, right? <laughs> Because he was living in this, in Hubei, he was living in this middle Yangtze uh, province. And then all the kind of publishing that was going on was kind of doing the quick job of, of, of uh, excerpting and um, uh, putting up these fancy new editions. And that's why they were really seeing him as an odd old man. Uh, when he showed up at the door of, of Wang Shijian, this fancy literatus in Nanjing, and presented him with this brand new, <laughs> even better version of the pharmacopoeia. It's like, who are you? <laughs> how, 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 how come you, you want to do this? And so I, I, I guess the whole chapter really contextualizes him and, and to kind of show the diversity of possible endeavors, I guess, of the 16th century, 
And how Li Shijun's pharmacopoeia did not hit the court. The court did not take him up. Um, but they tried all of the different ways to market it. And then eventually it was taken over by a provincial governor who was already doing the kind of uh, publishing earlier pharmacopoeias. So, so I think this is what the chapter uses, the method of book history to to reconstruct the complexity of the 16th century as this transition moment when so many new opportunities were opened up. And then unexpectedly, um, some of the older ideals lived on in very unlikely corners, right? It's not like a tradition that lives in the court, but it was taken up by some by someone in Hubei. So this is basically the, the first chapter. I guess for the for readers unfamiliar with Chinese history, I, I guess it's just to register how it's a print culture. It is uh, it is some development that is only possible for this kind of broadening literacy society that was a result of centuries of civil service examination going on, and then really this lack of consensus is. As to who owns this genre, who who gets to who gets to say things with authority, uh, so that's why I kind of see the 16th century as a moment of how the center cannot hold. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And as you said, it's it's a moment where um, question of who owns this genre mm-hmm. is you know being questioned, and also who can. Who can take on the prestige or use the prestige of this genre? Who right. can you know make? It's a it's a moment where you know uh, make it yourself is a real option in the in the mm-hmm. sense of mm-hmm. if you can't rely on the state to print it, if you can't rely on the state to print it, print it yourself as a viable option. If you yeah. can't yeah. buy the text that you want, find a way to get it. You know to get someone to write it, to get someone to print it. These are now viable actual right. strategies totally. that people. And then um, can it's, use during this yeah. moment. It's not necessarily the most fancy places, right? It's actually like in Shandong right. first, and then and then only <laughs> get to Nanjing later. So I think that that kind of redistributes our gaze on the main cultural domain, right? It's maybe we are looking at the wrong places. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So with that, you know, chapter one is is all about, as you said, decentralization. Um, and chapter two, then, as we move mm-hmm. to chapter two, is 
in some ways all about monetization, I guess. So chapter one right. saw the state mm-hmm. retreating um, from publishing pharmacopoeia, and chapter two sees the state retreating from right. directly procuring uh, Materia Medica from localities. So yes. previously, Materia Medica were procured from localities as mm-hmm. tribute, and now the state opts instead to collect silver. And as you point mm-hmm. out in this chapter, you know, the ascent of money and silver in Ming China, which was made possible, um, you know, by the New World, by newly opened mm-hmm. mines in the Americas, um, this has been written about before. And it's really seen as, you know, part of China's uh, entry into the early modern world. Right. But here you're offering, I think, as I've said before, a different take on this because yeah. you're approaching the monetization of the Ming from the lens of the monetization of tribute medicine. Mm -hmm. And something that you really make a point to highlight here is that local people are playing an active role in the ascent Mm -hmm. of money. They're not Mm -hmm. passive players. They're actively pushing and asking for the monetization of tribute medicine. Um, And you touch on a number of the cultural consequences that follow from this, um, Mm -hmm. particularly for pharmacopoeia. There was both the positive affirmation of local knowledge Mm -hmm. and the negative disavowal of previous records. Um, So can you talk about this directly? How did the monetization of medicine change Mm -hmm. the landscape of knowledge during this period? So I think this is the piece of the book that took me the longest to figure out, um, because this was actually the beginning of my post-general exam summer. I was sitting in the library. wondering what is my dissertation. And then I, I was reading Ming at the Tears. Sounds familiar, right? Um, and then I noticed, I, I remember clearly this moment when I saw the um, the Jiajing edition, early 16th century edition of the Huizhou Prefecture, Gazetier, uh, Huizhou Fuzhi. And then I was just floored to see mentions of thousands of, of caddies of medicine in this tax register chapter and then and then I, I was just browsing through other main gazetteers and then wow all of them basically had something so so this was the moment that got me started on this actually and and then and then I, I still think I'm, I just took a stab into the material in the book there are so much it's so rich in that how localities recorded this really push and pull negotiation with the central government as to what is it they owe, <laughs> they owe the, the, the government and why. Um, so I think the, the, the stage that I presented in the book are, are two things. One is that money did not kick in by itself. Right? It's not like obvious um, appeal. But there is this moral advocacy going on, um, again, dating way back uh, into before the, the Ming Dynasty, but, but, but intensified by the strengthening of the Ming state, which is that the central state cannot demand too much. Right? It's lower the tax, uh, reduce corruption, reduce waste uh, that is lost in transportation of those bulky stuff that the state demands from um, from the prefectures and counties all over the empire and to advocate for expediency on the part of the people 
but by very vocal scholar official advocates. Those are the kind of righteous types that pops up a lot in Ming history, and they they actually did something else, which is to really really seize on the tax and tribute issue, and then they made a lot of passionate plea. And then many of them, when they got to be local administrators, actually just did it uh, without central approval. So those were the records that we see in the local gazetteers, is that well before the famous single whip reform, rather late in the century, we see conversion of tributes going on, uh, especially in the South, um, since the very beginning of the 16th century at least. So this is this is where I, I come into the socioeconomic study of taxation and local society and like the state society relationship. But I, I just noticed that tribute items was just not very big in previous research. Uh, p- people looked at military service and uh, grain taxation, but I, I'm really uh, attracted by this landscape of, of manufactured goods and natural products that the Ming state likes to say it knows where it is produced and commission this labyrinth system to get them. Um, the second thing I guess I will say is on the epistemic uh, importance of this is that I, I want to give a context to chapter one in that it's not just about cultural capital, right? It is also about real, well, cultural capital is not less real, but it's also about people who are not necessarily uh, aiming at getting themselves published or, or even the, the correctness of the claims in the pharmacopoeia itself, but they were concerned with just divert, diverting this tax from our place, right? And then in order to do so, they make the argument that actually that kind of medicine no longer grows in our place. But then they they inadvertently made a knowledge claim, right? Because of this commitment to a certain kind of politics. So, and then in the end, their voices actually did add up, is that people begin to talk about the Tang and Song Ben Cao as um, out of date. Um, and people begin to record more kind of uh, narratives from the locality that may or may not be true, right? Because later as we see the merchants mm-hmm. come in and then all of a sudden this place does, does, does produce that kind of medicine. But they, they just no longer, they were just no longer willing to give it to the state out of their own expenses for transportation, uh, and this is the kind of politics of resistance to that. Yeah, so so I I was moving those two chapters around, but I decided to to juxtapose them to show that there is a larger political economic argument for the demise of the pharmacopoeia. It's not just print culture; it's something larger than that. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. And I think, as you said, these two chapters really do, chapter one and chapter two, very much go together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it this chapter, chapter two in particular, also branches out um, and starts to raise things that we'll see again um, in chapter four and chapter six. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm 
pointing to specifically here, the increased exoticization of tribute, you know, as most right. tribute right. moves to silver, yeah. Um, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. certain things that are still able to be procured mm-hmm. from localities become more, become exotica. Yes. They become yes. something yeah. uh, different and unusual. And we will see that again later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention yeah. that mm-hmm. here um, because you're sort of, you know, putting down the seeds of that, if you mm-hmm. like, um, in this chapter as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, so with then decentralization and mm-hmm. monetization under our belts, yeah. uh, we turn to chapters three and four. Um, and these chapters see us, um, you know, through the 17th century and the right. dynastic transition. So mm-hmm. chapter three is in the Ming and mm-hmm. chapter four is in the Qing. Right. Um, and in chapter three, I guess at least one of the themes is amateurization um, mm-hmm. because, you know, because of the trends discussed in chapters one and two during the late Ming um, elite literati started making their own medicines at home. Yeah. So pharmacy is in this strain of it, no longer part of medicine, or it's not even in the domain of the physician. Um, mm-hmm. But in certain mm-hmm. texts, it's conceived of as an entirely separate branch of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. here we see amateurs mm-hmm. carving pharmacy out as a field of pure inquiry into the mm-hmm. category of nature. Right, natural. So you talk about texts mm-hmm. here that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about texts here that, you know, really dismiss previous, you know, the Song of Benzal texts and that are trying instead to fit the workings Mm -hmm. of individual ingredients into coherent patterns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, um, if dried ginger, uh, Mm -hmm. if the pharmacological action of dried ginger is warming, then Mm -hmm. it must always be warm and there's no way it can cure warm diseases, even if other texts say otherwise, right? It's a, Mm -hmm. so there's a tension over there's a tension over the ownership of this you know really yeah. technical knowledge mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and chapter four follows on from this and here mm-hmm. it, you're looking at what sort of happens to this trend of amateurization mm-hmm. as the Ming is conquered by the Qing and you point out that there is some continuity but it's mainly discontinuity right. um, especially mm-hmm. as the Qing the Manchus work to establish first mm-hmm. control over Ming territory mm-hmm. and then knowledge itself. Right. Um, and I'm quoting from the book here. Um, they turned their attention to forging a firm ideological foundation that would justify once and for all the legitimacy of their rule over China. Mm-hmm. And you're talking a lot about state-led knowledge organization projects and mm-hmm. how they impact pharmacy here. Mm-hmm. So could mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about this? Where mm-hmm. is sort of the place of pharmacy mm-hmm. um, being put in some of these projects? And how does this shape really what pharmacy is thought of? Right. So the 17th century is hard. Um, I it, Here, mm-hmm. I, I kind of, this is where I have a... Um, Levinson moment, right? Is that it's it's the the famous beginning of Levinson's trilogy with mean culture as um, amateur culture, and then it applies to Bentao for a while until it doesn't. So um, <laughs> this is chapter three where we have really politically <laughs> politically activated Dongling partisans discoursing about the nature of drugs. And then, as a way of of reaffirming their their command of moral truth, so this is important. This was important for them because uh, this was part and parcel of their 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 program, right? Is that 
their kind of um, their image politics in, in Zhang Ying's words is actually based on a, a certain certain con- conviction that they understand nature from bottom up, and the nature of drugs is the foundation based on which they they make their moral claims. So I'm not going to say a lot more about chapter three, except that I I think this is kind of the, I want to bring those larger than life Dolin partisans into more human domains a little bit, is that they actually were actually wealthy people um, experimenting with drugs at home. (laughs) And they, they they like to debate and lecture on on on, on Bens, how they really want to claim the um, nature of drugs to themselves. They were not that respectful of previous medical traditions necessarily, and then they were kind of uh, punished by it. Right? They they their works were dispersed. Um, a lot of those very popular lecturers and authors. They kind of fled their cities when the Qing army came and their works were maybe published, but they were not taken up by the next generation following the conquest. So there is a certain sense of nostalgia following the conquest to the Dongling decades, obviously. But there's also that nostalgia that was then written into the historiography of the Ming that that justifies the Donglin position as self-evident and kind of prevents us from grasping the whole scale of why why their knowledge scheme maybe did not continue, right? So that's why chapter four is kind of hard for me to write because I'm writing against the archive in a way that was so much shaped by the Donglin moral science moment. Um, and then here's what, again, the Kangxi Emperor came into handy. Because in, <laughs> I think I, I really, this is in, in the peer review of my book, is people point out that the state, you, you wrote the state away, and, and then we don't see no more state. So where, where did the state go? <laughs> um, and I'm like, okay, okay, I'm going to actually look at what Kansi did. And then what he did or did not do is remarkable because he had all the power in the world to revive the pharmacopoeia tradition. And he did reprint the, the, the 1505 manuscripts of the Ming pharmacopoeia that I was talking about, that the manuscript was hidden in the palace and no one actually saw it till the Qing came. Um, maybe not, not, not nobody saw it, but it didn't make a huge splash. So Kangxi ordered it to be reprinted, meanwhile turning away from the idea of pharma- pharmacopoeia and the kind of pharmaceutical objecthood that was embodied in the Middle Period pharmacopoeia altogether. So this is something I'm still wrapping my head around. But if you look at the classification of knowledge in this 18th century Qing pharmacopoeia, right? They don't have a medicalized vision of the natural world anymore. Uh, this is the kind of knowledge tree that I, <laughs> I had a lot of fun 
translating and I didn't translate it, but I thought it's a good, it's a handy tool for me to show that why, how the Qing state actually did not take it up. Because what we see now is knowledge of plants, so tamu and, and animals, so worms and beasts, which were all under this umbrella of the pharmacopoeia a century ago, right? But now we see this very, very different landscape of knowledge. And, and that move, I think, really shaped how the 18th century, in terms of court learning and the basic structure of, of scholarly work, proceeded further away from Bentao. So this is something that I think needs to be more talked about. And the book here is just a beginning because... I'm still following Ben's Hao, right? I, I, I'm just showing that from this Kangxi moment all the way into the compilation of the Suku Chen Shu in later in the 18th century, we, we don't have the same uh, respect of this kind of encyclopedic pharmacopoeia anymore. Instead, we have we actually have uh, natural studies proper. So this is something that doesn't belong to the book, but I want to flag it out right here. Mm -hmm. I love that. So, so far, chapters, both chapter three and four are both, you've highlighted them both as uh, moments where there is more work to be done. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So more work, more work to be done here as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just put a little flag in that um, for anyone who's yeah, interested in continuing well, I, of this I line think, of I work. Think this, is, this is something that Every first-time authors should tell what his him or herself is that you cannot solve everything, <laughs> and and it's okay. Perfect, thank you. So with that, um, we turn then. So you know, knowing that cannot finish everything and cannot answer every question, um, mm -hmm. we turn then to chapter five. Right. And chapter five looks at, you know, something that has come up, you know, previously in chapter two, I think in particular, um, the commodification of pharmaceuticals mm -hmm. and the medicinal marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things you really highlight here is that the medicinal marketplace was an interregional one. Mm -hmm. um, as you point mm -hmm. out in this chapter, uh, a complete pharmacy in this period, you know, like the little model one that the book starts with, is one that's stocked with medicines from a number of different regions. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is really a chapter of two case studies. The first looks at the rise of a market town, which is mm -hmm. where wholesale traders of Materia Medica came together and pulled mm -hmm. together ingredients from across China. And the second case study looks at um, an example of an urban dispensing, uh, an urban pharmacy mm -hmm. that dispensed compound medicines. Right. And you argue that these urban pharmacies could really only exist after the integrated market came mm -hmm. into existence. Mm -hmm. And this is a really fascinating chapter. I think it has some of my favorite moments in the mm -hmm. whole book um, because you touch on a range of sources here. Mm -hmm. You look at an account of how, of how to run a pharmacy, right. which includes tips like um, rise early and retire yeah. late when a patient comes make a careful diagnosis and dispense the drugs never ever entrust it to your assistant yeah. which 
made me laugh. Um, <laughs> you, have, you have some examples of urban landscape paintings from mm-hmm. the late Ming that depict pharmacies, mm-hmm. which are beautiful. And then you touch on um, pharmacies that appear in works of literature. So this mm-hmm. is a really full chapter. Yeah. Um, but these are, you know, my favorite moments. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything that you want to really highlight for listeners about this chapter? Right. So this is a chapter that got that grew up, got two different chapters lumped together, as you could tell. Um, I I think I came to the point of realizing that I I I I wasn't an ethnographer of material culture in a way. Is that going further on either direction uh, would require. A, a, a different kind of inquiry, partly because um, those two kind of actors were one, if you will, it's the mercantile uh, people, right? So they took over the, the the task of supplying urban markets from the tribute towns, and they took over the the act of compounding and dispensing actual medicine from individual physicians. But they don't write. They they didn't <laughs> they didn't leave their archives for, <laughs> for me to parse. Instead, we have oblique records of how those people actually made an impact on the cultural landscape and how they how they how they branded themselves, right? As what kind of people they are. So I think in the end I decided to 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 join them in a way to hint at the cultural um, cultural niche, if you will, where they they possess, and to show that um, they mattered, and um, we should take them seriously for the kind of effects they they worked on Mingqing society. So the kind of consumers offhanded comment from literati in the South. Uh, for instance, this kind of scholastic author saying that, oh, of course, these days, all of medicines come from faraway places. And I was like, who are you buying it from? And, and the people who <laughs> he, he bought it from did not write. So I think this chapter can be read as an, an invitation to to reflect on our archive as it is, right? And to to to, mm-hmm. to leave the leave the silence to the people who were there um, instead of just writing over them. So I really mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you you like the the Jinping Mei moment when was and 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 he he actually <laughs> yeah and it's obviously he wasn't that much good at medicine, or, but he had money, right? This is, this is the point, is that, yes, money talks, but, mm-hmm. but in what ways? And how did he position himself with the kind of experts? And then I was really intrigued by the two different versions of Jinping Mei, where the kind of dispensing of pills from this doctor's office was basically deleted and kind of written over. I, I, I do think there is a un, un, there is a sea change, and I think it 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 reflects the increasing power that money had 
because only if you had capital can you access this transregional market, and then you can access this authenticity, right? So I hold on to two concepts that came up in this very sparse archive that those people left. One is authenticity, a place-based authenticity, the, the idea of Daodi. And then I, I, I argue that this is actually a, a kind of indirect claim to access to capital. And a second one is piety, right? the piety that the Torrentang owners really professed themselves to be. They, they are not medical people. They are, they are pious people. They are good businessmen and they are piously making medicines that they received from their ancestors. So many of those claims of authenticity and piety got branded as this kind of unchanging aspects of Chinese pharmacy. And I'm, I'm trying to locate them to this historical moment and to argue that those were actually really astute efforts at rebranding themselves as a new kind of provider in this interlocking uh, commercial network that gave us this kind of pharmacy. So I think a very basic way mm-hmm. of talking about the chapter is to highlight those values as historical products and then to invite us to interrogate our archive in, in new ways. Mm-hmm. I think this chapter was a really elegant solution to mm-hmm. the problem that you've just laid out, the problem mm-hmm. of not having text. I thought this was a great um, answer, mm-hmm. um, you know, rising to that challenge of how do you tell this story mm-hmm. um, without, as you said, glossing over it or just skipping it. Yeah. Um, I yeah. very much enjoyed yeah. uh, this chapter and, and the Jinping Mei moment as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so with this, you know, the in the final chapter of the book, chapter six, mm-hmm. we're sort of following um, the medicinal markets that we mm-hmm. see in chapter five as yeah. they move into new spaces and new frontiers. Yeah. And, you know, in these new frontiers come new medicines, exotica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of this chapter focuses on one pharmacopoeia in particular, mm-hmm. um, supplement to systematic materia mm-hmm. medica, mm-hmm. which was written in 1765, but mm-hmm. not printed until the 1860s. Right. And you really unpack the fascination with the exotic that mm-hmm. comes up in this pharmacopoeia. So you talk about you know, the interest in wild products, the desire for new medicines, experimentation with different types of medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about how travel and trade not only brought new products, but you know how travel mm-hmm. and trade itself developed new products. So you mentioned, yes. for example, um, you know a kind of algae attached to boats was used yeah. to make remedies for stomach pains, which yeah. is fascinating and disgusting in equal measures. Yeah. Um, but who am I to judge? Um, and you touch on the real interest that there seemed to be um, in the ways that some of this exotica was obtained and hunted down. Mm-hmm. So you talk about how this pharmacopoeia in particular talks at length about seal hunters and tiger yeah. hunters and deer hunters and you know the sort of visceral practical mm-hmm. ways that someone would get some of these medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, and you point out that it's really remarkable mm-hmm. that an elite pharmacopoeia writer at the time mm-hmm. would take the effort to, you know, find out, talk to local hunters um, about the best way to catch seals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So this this is all very, very cool. And the last section of the chapter looks at the threats of the unknown. So we point out that the trans-regional network of trade could be appropriated to spread things other than medicine. Yeah. They could be used to spread subversive messages. And a little later, some of these routes would be used to bring opium into mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. could you actually talk a little bit about this, the threats mm-hmm. of the unknown that mm-hmm. the commodification of pharmacy in this period started to bring um, into mm-hmm. the Qing and started to pose. Right. This chapter is totally new. It's not in my dissertation. Um, well, not not a lot of it. And I, I think I'm, I'm struggling with where to end this book. I could have ended this book with the pharmacy, right? This is like, okay, here's the early modern part that give us the recognizable features of traditional Chinese medicine in its modern uh, uh, basis, right? And but then I, I I note I realized that Zhao Xuemin, so this and this this guy in living in late 18th century, and he wrote he wrote a sequel to Li Shizhen, <laughs> and no one no one would publish mm-hmm. it. So the great thing about it is it is his marginality as a literatus who totally did not have any degree. Uh, and worked from job to job as a uh, adjunct. No, uh, I'm just <laughs> as a private tutor. <laughs> so, so he's by no means elite. All he had, he's completely politically disenfranchised, as so many educated men of his time and region. And all he had is curiosity and literacy, and he. He, he 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 undertook this crazy task to write a sequel to Li Shizhen, which again was kind of misaligning with his time. But there's something in his effort that really touched me in the ways he recorded those little episodes, his conversation with the butcher and and the hunter and, and the trader. Mm-hmm. And it's only because the literary class has has diverged into these the, the haves and the have-nots, right? In that the have-nots like him actually found themselves in the ranks of of purveyors and and merchants. So they there is not a separation among those kind of people. So this is something I think um, we don't talk a lot in the kind of uh, bankruptcy of the literati class, like the civil examination is a joke as a way of getting office. Like they don't, most of them don't. Um, but then, what is the epistemic stake? Right? How how then how then do we get a different cultural landscape when this kind of standard curriculum no longer like leads you to a political agency? as 16th century people assumed it would. So this is what I really loved about Zhao Xuemin and the kind of spaces he went to. And probably this was why this was not published until 19th century. But but I'm, I'm really glad that we have this. And I would argue we actually have a lot of fragmentary private voices that, of the prosperous age that gives us a lot of different uh, experiential evidence, I would argue, that come from 
this kind of marginalized literati class. So, so this is how the empire um, matters for a consumer in the Zhejiang coast, right? That he can hear anecdotes from the Yunnan borders. He can kind of hear about strange Tibetan Lama performing rituals in Beijing. Um, and he can get those foreign ships coming into Ningbo. And then he gets to investigate <laughs> into what white pepper is. So, and then he gets to criticize Li Shizhen and Fang Yizhi, the, the, the great scholars of the previous age, is that they were wrong, right? They got it wrong. I saw it. I saw it with my eyes and I talked with the dealers. <laughs> so, and then, so, then so what, right? So I, I didn't expect myself ending with this really depressing, well, there are two things I ended with. One, one is this really gross things about harvesting medicine from corpse and the kind of very, mm-hmm. very crazy claims that were going around and and he recorded them as credible. And the kind of un, unleashed capital basically generating products that is not in check. So people can buy false ginseng and got poisoned, right? And and so on and so forth. So I think this is the ugly side of maybe where I engage with the history of capitalism, if you will, is that here are the marketplace creating its own products. And then um, the knowledge claims that were actually so powerful that people had not, people did not have an authority to turn to as to what can be counted on. And another thing I ended with, which I didn't expect I do, is a kind of uh, uh, Philip Q moment of the spreading of rumors along those traders' network. So they not only traded maybe false medicine, but also rumors, and some of them subversive. So why was the Qing state so threatened by it? I, I think this is something that it's kind of a moment of reflection if you take the whole book into account, right? So it took 300 years for the Bentao framework to disintegrate, where you have specialized knowledge fields. Physicians do not talk to scholars, Confucian scholars, and, and pharmacists do not actually need to listen to physicians. And then what we have is that the state find it very hard to know anything for sure. And this is something that I think is the kind of, maybe it's the, there, there, is, there is something shared by the most powerful man maybe in the world and the kind of most powerless person. But then they, they, they were kind of left to their own means to face the, the the whole world and and they have to come up with a framework to comprehend it. So so the Tianlong Emperor encountered this this sorcery sorcerer figure from the medicinal marketplace. And then the latter claimed that he had a dream about Yongzheng Emperor and and then <laughs> and, and then it, it, it sounds plausible to him, you know. It's like mm-hmm. 
they they actually he actually did not object to the story itself, but to who are you to dream of my father? <laughs> only only I can dream <laughs> of him. So so in a way the the Qing state kind of opted for controlling the substances and their theories indirectly through the marketplace and the capital and did not invest in a kind of universal science. But in the end, it kind of backfired. I, I'm just suggesting that it, it is backfiring because if the spiritual and scientific power is all in the person of, of the emperor himself, then he doesn't have an external authority to turn to. And this is something that I'm still thinking about what does the late, the end of the prosperous age mean. And then quite frankly, this was the kind of network that gave us opium, which the state found very little means to control. So all this is kind of, again, turning around our familiar narratives in Chinese history from a different angle. Um, but I think I'm convinced that it is indeed another way of looking at this moment. So I would be really curious as to what my readers think. Mm -hmm. As you said, this is sort of a different way of looking at this particular moment. And mm -hmm. as you know, this um, section of the chapter in the book itself, you know, mm -hmm. and in the context of the book, as you said, We've sort of gone on, I think this chapter in particular makes it clear that we are in a very different place and a very different cultural landscape yeah. than where we yeah. started. Right. 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 This is right. this is, as you said, we've moved very far away yeah. from sort of state published um, totally. pharmacopoeia into a, a space in which a marginal figure mm -hmm. um, is able to sort of put together this pharmacopoeia based on um, mm -hmm. knowledge that is acquired based on personal experience, based mm -hmm. on, you know, they're making claims to this knowledge. It's knowledge gathered from travelers and traders. And, you know, mm -hmm. this is a place in which rumors are verified. You know, this is very different mm -hmm. from the very beginning exactly. of the book. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, it's sort of a whole journey um, that we've sort of gone on with this. Mm -hmm. um, and as we're in this space, we come to the end of the book and mm -hmm. this book ends not with a conclusion, but with an epilogue. Um, and I found this to be um, an important part of the book because it really tackles head on with the issues of how to think about Chinese pharmacy and what really the purpose of studying history and the history of Chinese pharmacy actually is. And mm -hmm. there are two quotations that I found particularly useful here um, mm -hmm. and very powerful. The first um, if we can now agree that there was no monolithic scientific tradition in any one civilization, Chinese mm -hmm. or otherwise, mm -hmm. then the goal of investigating these many paths and many traditions is to create new norms, protocols, mm -hmm. and narratives for the future. Mm -hmm. And this is, and then you end the book with, by activating the full spectrum of positions that motivated this history of pharmaceutical objecthood, I hope mm -hmm. to avoid thinking in terms of the false dichotomy between Chinese tradition and, in brackets, Western modernity. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of, again, I found this to be a really powerful ending, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm curious why you decided to end the book in this way. Mm -hmm. um, well, I... I think maybe it's easier for me to explain this at this moment than maybe last year, as we see 
the pandemic pa- pandemic <laughs> coming out of Wuhan, <laughs> which is this 18th century enclave of my hunters and uh, the kind of mercantile capital hub, right? And so I'm 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 witnessing this rapidly um, orientalizing discourse on the internet we have today. The wet markets, right? Um, the kind of TCM mm-hmm. craziness and um, the disputes over uh, its efficacy, both in China and abroad, and then so on and so forth. So, so I, I think I'm just bringing it up to to show that it's obviously <laughs> still the, the, the this this trope of of seeing Chinese medicine as as authentically Chinese and a monolithic one versus the other, which is biomedicine. Uh, and I just hope that people can acquire the, the historical frameworks if they, re- they read the book to, to know that, okay, the wet market is a product in time and the cons- consumption of pendolins mm-hmm could be seen as an early modern legacy of this moment of capital and consumption. Right? It's not Chinese. It's, it's Chinese early modern in 18th century, and then it is also revived in the 20th century, 21st century in the post-socialist period for other reasons. So this is something that um, <laughs> I was just brutally reminded of again and again after this book is out. And this is maybe something that the epilogue is getting at without knowing that there will be a really contemporary uh, event to for it to actually show its relevance. And then I think as a Chinese citizen, I'm committed to a kind of new possibilities of scientific culture and what kind of political openings it will lead. And then I'm deeply concerned with this kind of Chinese past versus Western modernity dichotomy. It's not going anywhere except for uh, basically father for nationalist thinking in the most um, wrong way, I think. So I, I'm going, I'm working on a Chinese translation of this and we'll see how it will be received. But this is some, something that I think, this is a position right? that I, I, I came down at the end of the book. And I'm trying to explain why this position of mine is both informed of by the research in the book, but also informs my research in the book. So I think this is mm-hmm. kind of what that epilogue is about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you said that this is really sort of a pre-pandemic epilogue that very much speaks to the moment yeah. of, of the pandemic that we are yeah. from, uh, currently from, situated from January, in. From January, I was like, oh no, West wet market. <laughs> and and, um, and Pendolin, right? It's, it's, it's so sad. But like, did people know that Chinese medicine could also be about this universal science that 
maybe the late Ming literati had dreamed of, or a kind of really um, the the different elements, right, that shows up in the book, and the kind of political critical edge that people displayed in history uh, that gave us our present. So we cannot just take it as a kind of weaponizing the past as a cultural legacy without reflecting on what's in it. So, Absolutely. And I th- the book as a whole, as I said, really, I think, speaks to the lack of a monolithic uh, mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. The definitely takes apart the facade of that little model of the pharmacy that the book um, really begins mm-hmm. with. Um, so now, and I mean, so thank you for writing the epilogue and the book as a whole. Um, but now that you're finished with it and, you know, coming to the end of your conversation with me, um, what are you working on next? What is inspiring you? Where are you going in addition to writing the Chinese translation of this book? What is, what are, what projects are on your desk at the moment? Yeah, I'm writing, I'm still not done with the 18th century, as you can see. Um, I'm following (laughs) two threads of the 18th century. One one is a social history of recipe books in the 18th century. When I'm I'm just curious about when medicine ceased to be this analogy to politics, right? So the Qing state really differentiated different fields of knowledge. What then motivated people to possess those techniques of the self and circulate them around? So it's kind of a a Foucauldian take on the Chinese 18th century. Another direction is natural history. So I'm working with a colleague of mine to work on Manchu Chinese natural history and the kind of um, names of plants and animals that uh, that just wasn't classical, right? It's not it's not necessarily all philologically driven classical inquiry, but something really facing the contemporary and drawing a lot from colloquial knowledge. And this is something I think you will like, and I'm sure we will have opportunities to <laughs> talk about. <laughs> but yeah, those are my kind of two unfinished quest of the 18th century. And I think pandemic aside, um, this is enough uh, material for me to, for a while. And I I think this is something I am grateful at the end of this book is that it doesn't kill my interest in (laughs) this trade. I mean, it's 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 really hard. It's really hard, but but then I I'm I'm left with more that I think I'm now equipped to do, uh, regardless of what institutions I work for. So I think this is really something that I recommend um, young authors to look forward to is a sense of, okay, you have a stake in this line of inquiry, and you can just do it. Um, and the book is just the first piece of it. Perfect. Well, I very much look forward to seeing 
all of the other pieces of uh, that, you know, follow from this first piece. And I'm very, I'm very curious to hear that you're interested in recipes because I, I mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. you started off talking about your initial interest in nutrition, um, right. I, I see, I see yeah. the nutrition coming back into that, it. That um, but again, yeah, that they both sound like fascinating projects. I wish you the very best of luck with them um, and whatever form they end up coming out on. Thank you so much, Hobian, for taking the time um, to talk about Know Your Remedies. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's, it's a great pleasure. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.